Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, found in the New Testament section of our Red Pew Bibles on page 56. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Heavenly Father, in this season of Advent, when we celebrate with anticipation the coming of your Son to die for us, redeem us from sin and death, it is a joyous time, Lord, but so many people are hurting and in need. Help each of us to reach out, letting your love shine through us and do what we can for others. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. And let us listen to, to your word. Amen. Luke 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we spend a few moments on this text and we spend time in communion together, I did want to solicit your prayers. I know that First Prayers is a, is a praying community, and we're living in a time when difficult things happen in our culture, tragic things happen in our culture. And because we're so overwhelmed with news from the media, we, we pause for a moment to reflect and then we move on. And I don't want us to ever quickly move on from any of these school shootings that we see happening all over this country. And I dread the day that should, ever, should, ever, should there ever be a shooting like what we saw in, at the Oxford High School just north of uh, Detroit 
that we would never see something like that in our community, but it's happening everywhere. And I would ask you, First Pres, to remember to pray for our principals and our high school teachers and at all levels, junior high and uh, at elementary schools, pray for these leaders because what happened on November the 30th where four lives were taken and a school with over a thousand students were just so traumatized and devastated. This, this will scar them for the rest of their lives. And I'm afraid to say that in America today, this is becoming the norm. We're not outraged as we used to be. We're not as shocked as we used to be. We hear it, we hear the news, we move on. I don't want us to move on. I want us to be praying for these schools. Pray for the schools in the city of Chicago and on the North Shore that the grace of God would prevail and that these young people with access to guns and these families with access to guns, that they would be wise they would be circumspect in what they do with those weapons, particularly some of our young folks who are dealing with mental health challenges. So I, I encourage you in your small groups, in your private time, in your prayer meetings, if you would remember our school administrators. Let's just pray right now. Oh God, we, we sang that beautiful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It gives us that beautiful vision of a time when all strife and malice, all bitterness and rancor, all violence will end with the coming of Emmanuel. And Lord, we believe that that time indeed is here. Even though we still see the works of darkness, Lord, we know that you're on the move and you've raised up your people to be messengers of that hope. And Lord, we lift up at Oxford High School. We lift up the families to you who have lost loved ones. We lift up the teachers and the principals and the guidance counselors and all these folks, the, the police officers, the first responders who witnessed the terror of that moment. God, your peace, the peace of Emmanuel would be upon them and upon all of our schools in this country here in Evanston, in the Chicago area. Lord, we see so much violence, so much violence around us. And Lord, may we be messengers of peace in this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So friends, I want to remind you, as we've heard over and over again, that this is indeed the second Sunday of Advent. And this is an opportunity for us just to pause and to sink deeply into the hope that Advent brings for us. This is not some kind of a prelude to this is not some kind of a prelude to Christmas. This is really an opportunity for us to pause and to reflect and to celebrate the coming of our Messiah King. Prepare him room. That's the theme that we're using this time of the year. Prepare room in our lives for Jesus. And as we heard Amanda share with the kids, we have all entertained guests, haven't we? People have come to our homes, and we go out of our way to prepare room for them. We clean the rugs, and we 
cook the meals and dust and uh, prepare the linen and we try to get everything right because we want this person to feel that they are part of a home where they're being welcomed. And that's just the way we do things. And there's a sense in which Advent invites us to do the same. This happened before I was born, but in 1953, Queen Elizabeth II, she was 27 years old, one of her first visits to the Caribbean region, the Commonwealth, the Caribbean islands. She visited the island of Jamaica, and in preparation for her coming, the government spent considerable funds, considerable sums of money, beautifying places all over the island. Colorful banners were decorating the streets, welcoming the queen to Jamaica. And it was a big deal then. They spent a lot of money. And since then, she and different members of her family have come back to the island of Jamaica, and every time she or they would come, we roll out the red carpet for her. That is what we do. And there's a sense in which what we're reading today is about the coming of someone even greater than Queen Elizabeth and preparing the lives of people for the coming of the Messiah. And that's what we're reading about in this ministry of John the Baptist. He was called to prepare, prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he succeeded even before he started. Can you believe that? Because in the prophecy of Isaiah, and if you have your Bibles open, you'll see the reference to the prophecy of Isaiah, where the Lord promises that every obstacle that could hinder people from coming would be removed. You know, I think about that all the time as a pastor, as a church, and I say, Lord, may we never put mountains that would block people from coming to you. May we never create these valleys that would cause people to sink into ruts in coming to you. May we never create crooked paths. And here we read the promise of Isaiah that God, in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, would send a messenger. The Lord promises that he would make the way straight. Every valley would be filled Every mountain and hill would be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough made ways made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And within those words, friends, you hear a call to repentance. Because it's not literally that you're going to see mountains and valleys being leveled and filled, but it's what's happening in the lives of the people. The mountains may represent the proud, that God is going to bring the proud down. The crooked path might represent the corruption. And you notice how, the, how the, the message opens up, where there is a reference to all these powerful political leaders and all the powerful religious leaders. And, and, and Luke is almost suggesting that this, it's at this moment in time that God overlooks those people. It's at this moment in time that God calls John the Baptist. The word of God comes to John the Baptist in the wilderness. And when John begins to preach, the mountains, the obstacles, the meandering crooked ways, all of those things begin to be sorted out so that people may come 
and repent. John the Baptist is essentially saying, it's not about mending the roads. And when Queen Elizabeth came, you know, we fixed up the roads. This is more than that. God is saying, I want to mend your lives. I want to mend your lives. And that's why Jesus said that his cousin, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, was the greatest prophet ever to live. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 7 and verse 28. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. And I think about last Sunday when David Ivaska stood right here in the front of the chancel and led this wonderful Advent class, which he will do again this morning, talking about the tough questions of Christmas. And he talked about John's father, Zachariah, and the question that Zechariah asked the angel, he said, how will I know that these things that you've said about my child will actually be so? And the angel said this, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and with, with the Spirit and the power of Elijah. Imagine how great Elijah was as a prophet. He stood up to King Ahab. And with the spirit and the power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children. Isn't that beautiful? And the disobedient to the wisdom of the, of the righteous. And then it says this, to make a people ready and prepared for the Lord. That's what this season is all about. I want you to be ready. I want for all of us to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. The thing about John the Baptist is that I call him the anti-seeker sensitive preacher. And I know how important it is when somebody stands up to preach that we want to hear stories and we want to hear jokes, and we want to hear things that will make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, but not this preacher. He is, he is not a mainstream person or preacher. He lives on the margins of society. He preaches a very plain, direct message to all who will hear, and he challenges the political leaders that you heard Susan mention. He challenges the religious leaders and it got him into trouble with one of those names, Herod, the ruler of Galilee, because John the Baptist, not a, not a seeker-sensitive preacher, challenged this man from marrying his brother's sister, and he was executed for it. His location, not some fancy pulpit like this, it was in the wilderness, a dry, deserted place, haunted by wild animals and demonic spirits. And you can tell from his clothing that he doesn't shop at Brooks Brothers. His cuisine is something you and I would never want to mess with. When was the last time you tried to survive on a diet of, of, of locusts and wild honey? And his message was not heartwarming. 
John said to the people as they gathered, you see it in verse 7, he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He wasn't preaching to gain accolades. He knew he was appointed by God. Here's the amazing thing, though. You would think a preacher who sets up shop in the wilderness instead of an air-conditioned church with padded pews that nobody would show up to hear him. Who wants to come to a hot, barren wilderness to listen to a scantily clad preacher who lives on a weird diet? Who wants to come to hear that kind of crazy person when you read the text, it said people came from all over, Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding regions. And you could just see them all coming to see this spectacle, the religious coming to criticize him, the irreligious wondering if this could be what will help them, the powerful, the weak, they came to hear the message. And the message again, he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And they still came. You say, well, Pastor, why did they come? What would motivate people to come out in droves from Jerusalem and Judea and around the Jordan? Well, listen, these people had burdens. When your life is not working, when you're looking for meaning and fulfillment, you're going to come searching even in the desert. And we live in a day today when people, a lot of people, live with a deep sense of failure, brokenness, emptiness. And they're trying to quench their thirst. They're trying to find help. They're trying to find happiness. And the money that they have does not provide that for them. The drugs that they take doesn't help them. And they're still empty. And Augustine said it this way, and you know this quote, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And these people were restless. And they came to the desert, listening to this wild preacher and the wild message, the tough message that he gave to them. We shouldn't be surprised. Because when you're hungry, you go where you can find food. When you're thirsty, you go where you can find water. When you feel empty, you go where you can be filled. When you're looking for love, you go where you think you're going to find love. And these people came because they had needs. They were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for a Savior. They didn't find it in the temple. They didn't find it in the halls of politics. They didn't find it with the religious leaders. And so they said, let's give this wild preacher a chance. And they left their homes. And they came to the desert. And what they heard was the good news. There's a Messiah who's coming. And you need to be ready when he comes. And he says to them, I want you to repent of your sins and be baptized in the Jordan River. John the Baptist, I will say to us this morning, stands as a corrective 
to the modern church, to the evangelical church, setting aside his clothing, setting aside his location, setting aside his weird way of dressing and eating, John the Baptist helps the American church today in three very powerful ways. First of all, one way he helps, particularly mainline churches, is that we must stop telling ourselves the lie that I'm not that bad. I'm okay. John the Baptist knew what the religious folks were thinking. They were saying to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. What were they saying? They were saying, you know, we're not that bad. We grew up with the assumption that since we're descendants of Abraham, since we're members of a chosen race, we're okay. What does John do? John destroys that. And he says, don't say that you're children of Abraham because God can even raise up these stones as his children to praise him. That's one form of spiritual blindness that we need to get rid of. Here's a, here's a second lie that we sometimes tell ourselves is that, well, I've made so many mistakes with my life. There's just no hope for me. Maybe we have some folks here today that you're feeling that way. You weren't too good with your marriage. You weren't too good with your vows. Maybe you're sitting here and you know that you are doing some things you shouldn't be doing, and you're wondering, could God still love me? The devil has a way, the Bible says, of being the accuser. And he will tell you that it's too late. No one could ever love you. Look at you. What a failure you are. And I'm wondering if that is the reason why you hear these three groups shouting out from the crowd to John. If you look at verse 10, and you had this group of, from the crowd then that said, what then should we do? Something from John's preaching stirred them up. What then should we do? There's another group from the crowd, the tax collectors, and you know how horrible these people are in the eyes of that culture. And they came also, and they said, Teacher, what should we do? And there was a third group, the soldiers. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers who crucify who abused their, their power. They were convicted in the preaching of John, and they said, and we, what should we do? Maybe they were saying to themselves, I don't know if I'm good enough for this God. And John gives them the answer. Only God does that. Maybe that's the second thing we need to learn as, as churches in North America. That we need to stop thinking that we can bring people into the church. Sure, if we jazz things up, have the right music, have the right ambiance, have the right temperature, create a consumerist society, of course people will come. But is that what we want? For people just to come and fill the pews? John wasn't satisfied with that. In fact, John said, why are you coming, you brood of vipers? Who told you to flee? the wrath that is to come. 
Maybe the second thing John is teaching us is that we need to trust God to awaken within people's hearts that yearning, that question, what should we do? Maybe the third thing John the Baptist teaches the church in America today is that we have lost confidence in the power of God's word. John didn't stand in that hot sun to entertain. John didn't stand in that hot sun to tell jokes. John didn't stop standing in that hot sun to tickle the intellectual imaginations of people and use big fancy words so that people could say, wow, you are amazing. No, John, the word of God came to John and John gave the word to the people and it was the word of God and the power of God's word that evoked within these folks the desire to want to repent and to be baptized. And repentance, friends, you wonder what repentance means. Let's just close on those two words. I can't force you to repent. Repentance is something that God evokes within the heart of his people where you begin to see that I have sinned. And I know some of us are so busy looking at other people and what they have done and what they haven't done and what they said and what they should have said and we are quick to see the sins that others have done and you're not ready to repent. It's when you see your sin it's when you know that you are standing before this God who hates sin. And like Isaiah, where he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When you see the holiness of God, and they saw that in John's preaching, and to repent, what does that mean? It's more than just crying tears. It's more than just having a spiritual moment. To repent to turn. To repent is to have a change of mind. And I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, the American church, we here in first place, we can't do that. That is something God does in the hearts of his people. So, so if you're going to prepare him room, I believe God is saying to you this morning, are you willing to repent and turn to me? And then it is, isn't it interesting that following repentance comes baptism? Baptism is so important. And people in that culture, many of them had already gone into the River Jordan for various reasons to be baptized. But it was because of their confession, their acknowledgement of their sin, their desire to start anew. They said, Lord, I want to be baptized. And they walked into the Jordan River Isaiah 53 said that there's another person who was numbered among the transgressors. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist saw his cousin Jesus standing in the line, and he said to him, what are you doing here? I should be the one coming to you to be baptized. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Let it be so. Let it be so, according to the righteousness of God. Even Jesus came to be baptized. And I'm wondering this morning, some of us need to renew our baptism. 
Some of us need to come back to that mourner's bench and repent of our sin and prepare room for Jesus. Not the Christmas tree, not the Christmas gifts. Prepare room here for Jesus. And that's what John the Baptist did. That is what we're praying will happen for you and for me and all of our family members and all across America because it's only then that we're going to put our guns down. It is only then that we're going to stop looking at each other based on the color of our skin. It is only then when we're going to do justice and love righteousness and walk humbly with God when we as a people in America, the church in America, repents of her sin and comes before God and that last line in verse 6 is going to be fulfilled, that all flesh will see the salvation of God because of what they see God doing in us and among us and through us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say, Amen, amen and Amen.